Our scripture this morning comes from Colossians chapter 2, verse 16. We're making our way through the book of Colossians in the fall and then into the spring. And if you don't have a Bible with you, you'll be benefited by looking at a pew Bible in front of you. That's on page 984. And we're actually going to begin with verse 16 and end in chapter 3, verse 4. So Colossians chapter 2, 16 through chapter 3, verse 4. Let's stand together as we read God's word. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still a lot... Why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to its regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. If then you have been raised with Christ... Seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are, that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. You may be seated, and let's take a few moments to reflect on God's word. Krakow. Krakow is a city in Poland. And in the 13th century, Krakow was under constant, a threat, constant threat of enemy invasion. And so the town stationed a single watchman with a trumpet at the highest point in the city, which happened to be the steeple of the church of St. Mary. And one evening, the watchman noticed the enemy charging over the horizon. And so the, the, the single watchman got up with his trumpet and he began to, to blow the trumpet as the early warning sign for the townspeople to gather together and repel the oncoming enemy. And because of the trumpeter's um, keen eye and his staying awake, fortunately, the town was was saved, they repelled the enemy, but unfortunately for the trumpeter, he was shot with an arrow through the throat, and he died. And that was in the 12th century, or the 13th century, so that's the 1200s. Every day, since that day, for about 800 years, a trumpeter stands at the top of that tower, 
and plays a little hymn, a little song just to remind the town that one day somebody stood up here and they gave their life so that the enemies wouldn't come in and invade their town. And it's a very interesting little song. It's kind of melodic, but it ends kind of sharply. It ends quickly on kind of a high note as to help the town remember that that's how it happened for the trumpeter. While he was playing, he got shot. And suddenly, the the song stopped. And I thought it would be worthwhile just to listen to about 15 seconds of that. So every day, if you live in Krakow, that's what you hear. This this nice song, but it suddenly stops because somebody gave his life. Somebody was willing to, to stand there and blow this trumpet so that the, the, these enemies wouldn't invade the city. And I think when we look at our text this morning, you can imagine the Apostle Paul being the trumpeter. He's the watchman. He's standing at the top of this tower and he's overlooking his churches, specifically this church in Colossae, and he's blowing this trumpet and he's alerting the church that invaders are charging over the horizon. He can see the invasion coming towards the church and those invaders are what I'm going to call the enemies of grace. So Epaphras has come. He's given the gospel to this town. A church is formed. They've understood the gospel of grace. But Paul is the trumpeter. He understands whenever the gospel of grace is presented, whenever a church is formed, enemies of grace are coming to invade. And so he's blowing the trumpet and he's trying to help these people understand the enemies of grace are on their way into the church. I love how Sam Storm says it in his commentary. Divine grace will always be a threat to human nature because it undermines our efforts to justify ourselves. Grace undermines our best efforts at establishing a list of requirements and prohibitions we can impose on ourselves and others as condition of acceptance with God. Grace demands only one thing, that all glory and credit be given to Jesus Christ. And human nature instinctively hates that. That's why whenever the gospel of grace is preached, legalism rears its ugly head. Once you declare God has graciously provided all we need in the person and work of Jesus Christ, you can be sure fallen human nature will rise up in protest and try to sneak in somewhere a rule or regulation we can fulfill. Or a ritual we can perform, which will enhance our spiritual standing and put God in debt to us. So Paul sees this legalism, this these enemies of grace coming towards the church. And he's trying to blow the trumpet and warn. And he does this in three ways. Three enemies of grace we see in the text. Chapter chapter two, verse 16 and 17, legalism. That's one enemy of grace. Verse 18 and 19, mysticism. That's the second enemy of grace. And verses 20 through 23, asceticism. So let's look at these three enemies. And I guess as we look through those, you might want to ask yourself, have, has anybody ever tried to invade 
your understanding of the gospel with one of these three. And possibly more important is, have you participated in some way as an enemy of grace by being one of these three? So legalism, verse 16 and 17. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. One translation puts it this way. Don't put up with anyone pressuring you into details about diet or days. Don't allow somebody to infiltrate the the camp. Don't allow somebody to infiltrate the church and start pressuring you about your diet or your days. The Apostle Paul sounding this trumpet against all those who would want to import the Old Testament dietary laws or the Old Testament celebration of days into the church. I think this is important. Legalists are not people who insist on you obeying certain laws in order to be saved. Legalists are not people. They are not people who insist on you obeying certain laws to be saved. The people who are that way, they're not legalists. They're lost. Legalists, instead, are people who believe that having Jesus is a good start. But to really be fulfilled, then there's certain things you have to hold on to. Oh, I'm so glad you've got Jesus. He's an awesome start. But, but see, he's just not quite sufficient. And what's going to fill up that little extra spot that Jesus can't quite reach is things that you do. That's what legalism is. And, of course, there's all kinds of legalism. There's one, one, one side of it is what I call lifestyle legalism. If you grew up in the 60s and 70s like I did, and you went to small southern churches, no doubt you were acquainted with the list. No smoking, no drinking, no dancing. Really, no fun of any kind could be had. And there are all kinds of lifestyle things. And they may sound strange to you now because you're not, you didn't grow up in the 60s and 70s. But to be sure, you've encountered some kind of lifestyle legalist today. It seems to me that mothers, especially mothers with young children, are a rich target for a lifestyle legalist. I'm not saying mothers are. I'm just saying they just that that camp seems to be a a good target for somebody who's a lifestyle legalist. You've you've heard it. How you should how many children you should have, what kind of diapers they should wear, how they should be educated, how they should be disciplined, how they should be dressed, how they should date. So somebody comes in and and because you're a new mom, you're you don't want to ruin this product. And so you're really anxious about getting it right. And the lifestyle legalist says, yeah, if you want to get it just right, this is the way you have to do it. And so for a lifestyle lifestyle legalist, they don't just have preferences. Everybody has preferences. But their preferences have morphed into demands. And they come in and say, you have to do it this way if you're really going to do it God's way. Really, I would say worse than the lifestyle legalists are the legalists who slap an Old Testament Bible verse on their preference. 
This is the kind of legalism that Paul's specifically addressing. He's, he's looking at people and he regularly dealt with people who would go back to the Old Testament dietary laws. They go back to Leviticus chapter 11 or they go back to the Israelite calendar that was filled with special days. There are special days of the years of the year. That's festivals. There's special days of the month. That's the new moon. And there's special, there's a special day of the week which is the Sabbath. And they're trying to import all these things into the New Testament church. And the entire book of Galatians is dedicated to this one single problem. And I want you to just listen to one of Paul's statements against this kind of legalism, chapter 5, verse 1 of Galatians. And I think in, if he could write it to way he was, way he was shouting, he would be shouting in this verse. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. See, don't let anybody come rescue you from your freedom in Christ and drag you back to slavery. Paul saw this enemy coming over the horizon. And he's trying to warn them to to not be uh, uh, infiltrated with this enemy of grace. And of course, I agree with the Apostle Paul, no doubt, but... I think you can understand, and I'm at least sympathetic to, what's attractive about legalism. There are certain things that are attractive about it that I think you can understand. Legalism provides a sense of security. It helps you know exactly what to do with every situation. It creates certain boundaries, and that kind of boundary creates a kind of sense of security. And there's a psychological safety in being morally stiff. Legalism also provides control. You you don't ever have to fear the unknown because there's always a rule or a law. If you're a kind of person who always sees things in black and white, you probably lean towards legalism. Legalism provides comfort in conformity. It's reassuring to come to a place where everybody thinks the same, where everybody dresses the same, where everybody likes the same songs I like. Where everybody sends their kids to the same school. There's some sort of comfort in this conformity. You look for it. I look for it. And it's very easy to want that. And then you sort of just migrate in towards this, this legalism. Paul refers to this kind of legalism as slavery. So he's condemning it in the strongest kind of terms. Most of the time... This has been my personal experience, and I bet you resonate with it. When you meet a legalist, you feel condemned. The word Paul uses in the text is judged. They're, they're up on high. They're the judge. And you come in and, well, you got Jesus, and that's a good start, but, you know, you need to fix this. Or you, you feel controlled. You feel like you're stuffed into somebody else's religious box. You might feel like joy gets sucked out of your life, or you might feel like you're, you're always motivated by fear rather than freedom. You can always know if you feel that tension of, of I'm always operating out of fear. Then, then you're, you're carrying some kind of yoke that you're not supposed to be carrying. Paul's wonderfully brief but vivid argument against legalism, verse 17, is that it's those are shadows 
And now the real thing has come, and that's the substance, Jesus Christ. The Old Testament uh, rules and regulations, the Old Testament diet, the Old Testament festivals, they were great. They were meant for a very specific time, a very specific people, for a very specific person. But they're all the Old Testament is a shadow. And when Christ comes, the real thing happens. And so you would never go back and embrace the shadow. Imagine if you had a, a, somebody that you loved, a lover. A parent, a child, whoever it would be, a friend. Would you rather hug their shadow or would you rather hug themselves? And see what happened is these people are going back and saying, Oh, I just love the shadows. And Paul's saying, No, the real thing has come. Let go of the shadows. The Old Testament Passover celebration is wonderful. But it's a wonderful shadow of the lamb who came, who took away the sins of the world. So you're not going to go back and embrace the Passover lamb because the real lamb has come. Does that make sense? And so these people come into the church and they're embracing the Old Testament shadows and they're demanding that you embrace the Old Testament shadows as well. Paul says, don't let somebody take away your freedom. The first enemy over the horizon into the church is the enemy of grace is legalism. And Paul's sounding that trumpet. Don't let somebody drag you back to the shadow land. The second enemy of grace uh, is mysticism. Verses 18 and 19. Let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and worship of angels going on in detail about visions They're puffed up without reason. They don't hold fast to the head who is Jesus Christ. Let no one disqualify you is an interesting Greek term. It's an athletic term and it means an umpire who throws you out of a game. So somebody's coming in like an umpire and they're judging whether you're in or out, whether you're safe or not. And they're coming in with their own man-made religion and they're deciding who gets in and who gets out. And Paul knows this enemy is always on the horizon for the church. And the frustrating thing about this is they appear to be very humble. This word asceticism can mean delight in false humility. If you have the NIV, that's what it says. These people come in and they look very humble. They don't look like the umpire. They don't look like the judge. They're very humble people. And they appear to be very humble, but when they find out that all you're relying on for your fulfillment is Christ, and they find out that you haven't had some kind of special visit by an angel, you don't have some special vision, well, then you're out. Not you're out of the church, but you're out of that inner circle in the church. Oh, sure, you can stay. Please stay. But you know, inside every church, there's an inner circle. The people who've really had the spiritual revelation. And see, it's very attractive, especially if you're a new person to a church. If you're a new believer, everybody wants to be on the inner circle. Every middle school, every high school, every college student feels that pull. Do you not? You know what the inner circle is. You know where the inner circle is in the cafeteria. Do you not? And you know if you're in it or not in it. You you know what the inner circle is, and it happens in churches that, well, everybody's welcome, but the inner circle, they all have had this 
kind of unique vision, this kind of unique experience. Actually, their false humility is an ugly pride, and it makes your faith feel second rate. C.S. Lewis, imagine being in England in the 1940s, and he lectures at your college. Hey, C.S. Lewis is going to be on college campus today. You want to come and hear him? Well, yes, I do. But in 1944, he's delivering this lecture to college students, and he's talking about this hunger to be a part of the inner ring. And this is what he says, of all passions, the passion for the inner ring is the most skilled in making a man who is not a very bad man do very bad things. The hunger for the inner ring has a unique power, a unique motivation to make somebody who's not a very bad person do very bad things. If you looked at Paul Phillips when he was 16, this was the primary motivator for Paul Phillips. This is the primary motivator for many middle school, high school, and college students. I wouldn't really want to do that, but I'm dying to get in the inner ring. So I'll do things I never would really agree to on my own, but to get on the inside, I'll do things that I would never think about otherwise. Paul says, don't don't let anyone, no matter how humble they appear, no matter how incredible their vision may be, don't let them be like an umpire and throw you out. And, and I love, we can go back and look at it, chapter 1, verse 12. What qualifies you or who has qualified you to be in the inner ring? Paul says it earlier in chapter 1, verse 12. Give thanks to the Father who has qualified you how did you get in the inner ring jesus got you in the inner ring not any special vision not any special experience the reason you're qualified is by god almighty himself so you don't need someone else umping you whether you get in or not you don't need somebody else qualifying you to see if you get in or not you've been qualified by god and that's all you need Paul is specifically warning against those who have worship of angels and who go into some great detail about an extraordinary vision or experience. This is a kind of religious mysticism that was popular in Colossae. It's very popular in America. And there are tons of examples. I think the easiest example to point out is bookstores with bookshelves filled with Tourists who have visited heaven. There's a whole line of these books. But people have been on a tour of heaven. They died for some little time. It's a pretty similar story. They got a tour of heaven. Three minutes, 30 minutes, 90 minutes. They came back with an incredible story. They immediately got a book deal. And became a bestseller. So heaven tourism sells, it's mysticism. And I agree with Tim Challies when he writes, the idea of God calling a person to heaven and back, then having that person share his experience in order to bolster our faith is the exact opposite of what the Lord desires for us. We have no reason to look to another person's experience of heaven in order to prove that heaven is for real. The Bible promises blessings on those who do not see and yet have believed. 
Our hope is not in the story of a minister or a toddler or a doctor or anyone else who insists that they have been to heaven. Our hope is in Jesus Christ as God that God has graciously revealed to him, him to us in the Bible. Faith is believing that God says what God says in his word is true and without error. You've no doubt seen if you've been on any kind of news sites that one of the best sellers, the boy who came back from heaven, written in 2004, immediately hit the bestseller list about a boy who was in a car accident, said he went to heaven, detailed the analysis to his dad just this week, said it didn't happen. His, here's his quote. I did not die. I did not go to heaven, Alex wrote. I said I went to heaven because I thought it would get me attention. When I made the claims that I did, I never read the Bible. People have profited from lies and continue to. They should read the Bible, which is enough. Now, I think that's regrettable. I'm glad that he was honest about it. But I can give you a worse experience than that. I went to a funeral here in town. I'm at a big church in town. This man that is, was, was in his 50s, I think he died too early. place was packed. And I'm thinking, this is such an awesome moment to tell people what the hope this man has and what the hope the church has to give. And that is Jesus Christ is our hope. He's the one who's defeated death. He's the one. He's the first fruits of the new creation. Because there's an empty tomb, we can trust that our tomb will be empty. It's really not that complicated. And I'm thinking, this is a home run for 800 people or however many people are in the sanctuary. And the pastor of the church gets up and tells about an experience that he had when he was a hospital chaplain. That he met a guy who supposedly died. He went up into the corner of the room and he told a bunch of details about what happened while he was on the table. And he came back and we can be sure that we're there's life after death. And I was sitting there going, oh, please, this is not, please don't tell me. This is what you're laying on everyone here, that they should leave hoping that your story about a guy in a hospital room who floated to the corner of the room and told you some details, that's your hope. But that's what he said. But see, we live in this age of mysticism if there's some kind of special vision some kind of special experience then wow that sets you apart you must be in the inner circle and i can hold on to that hold on to jesus christ is what paul is trying to say he's blowing the trumpet saying christ qualified you don't let an enemy come in and say you're not qualified don't let some special experience somebody who appears to be humble say something and draw you away from the gospel Well, let me not get on my soapbox. Third enemy of grace. Well, let me go back to this second. Notice Paul's imagery. They're puffed up without reason. You ever caught a puffer fish? Little fish, but when you get it out of the water, what happens? Looks giant. That's what Paul's saying. These people are small people, but when you get around them, they tell this giant story. 
And you go, wow, they're giant. He's saying, puffed up, no reason. All hat, no cattle, as they say in Texas. Looks big, not big. Don't fall for that. Third, asceticism, this third enemy of grace. Again, Sam Storm's definition. Asceticism is the belief that you add enough physical negatives together, you get a spiritual positive. If you add enough physical negatives together, then you get some kind of spiritual positive. Don't taste, don't touch, don't handle. If you, if you add enough of these things you're not supposed to do, somehow spiritually you come out on a positive side. Now, asceticism, which is really punishment of the body, is different than discipline. Spiritual discipline, as you might imagine, Paul holds in high regard. He says in 1 Corinthians 9, I beat my body and make it my slave. And when he's saying that, he's talking about exercising personal spiritual discipline. We're going to get to that in the next couple of weeks in chapter 3. So, But asceticism is something different. Asceticism rejects the grace-offered way to God and instead insist on getting to God by self-sacrifice. So I don't need grace or I need some grace, but I also need to do these things to my body to make sure I really get on the inside. Paul says they, they come in verse 20, they try to submit. That word means dictate. They try to try to say, don't touch, don't taste Almost certainly Paul's referring to sexual contact and food. Certain things you shouldn't do with your body, certain things you shouldn't do with food. And, of course, there are certain things that you shouldn't do with those. But he's saying they're using it in some way to get, to, get you to, to live in a certain way that gets you to God. First Timothy 4, Paul warns Timothy, the pastor in Ephesus, the Spirit clearly says, Timothy, that in latter days some will, come, some will abandon the faith, follow deceiving spirits. They will forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods. So somebody comes in that's controlling, trying to get you to submit, trying to get you to go back to slavery. Notice how Paul concludes, they have the appearance of wisdom. They look smart. So it's easy to be captured. But what they're saying offers no value in restraining your physical impulses. In other words, all their rules and regulations about what you're supposed to eat or what you're supposed to do with your body get you so focused on your body that you can't, can't do it. If you have a problem with lust and you just say, don't lust, don't lust, just don't lust, don't lust, what's going to happen? Lust, lust, lust. I mean, that's what happens. You're so focused on it to say, I make sure I can't do this. It, it just overwhelms you. So Paul is saying those things look wise, but they're not. They have actually have the opposite effect. And my closing question here as we, we see these three enemies of grace is, have you ever fallen prey to any one of these three enemies? The, the enemy of grace of legalism. The enemy of grace of mysticism. The, legalism, the enemies of grace in asceticism. And more importantly, have you ever participated in those?
You've promoted that in some way. My closing question is, well, if those things don't have value, then what does have value? Paul's taking all those things that they have no value. And we'll get to more of this next week, but you want to ask yourself, well, then what does have value? And if you turn to chapter 3, you see in this first four verses, he gives you the value. Set your minds on things that are above. Look at Christ. Look to Christ. He's the answer. He's the qualifier. He's the one that fulfills you in every possible way. All these enemies of grace are not just removed. They must be replaced. You can't just remove the enemy of grace. You have to replace it with a friend. You have to replace it with something good. You have to focus your mind on it. And Thomas Chalmers writes this essay, love the title of it, The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. Now let me read you a quote before this, about this, but before I do, just you know it. If you're, if you're a, a teenage boy or a teenage girl, and somebody just broke your heart. You can't get over it. You can't just say, don't think about her anymore. Don't think about him anymore. That doesn't work. What works? Getting a new boyfriend or girlfriend. That's what does. Right? You get somebody you really love. Boom. I don't like that. Per- I never really liked that person. Don't why I ever date him. That's what happens. You get a new affection and you just don't remove something. It gets replaced by this new affection. Thomas Chalmers sees that and he says this. It is seldom that any of our bad habits or flaws disappear by a mere process of natural extinction. Have you noticed that? Or by any force of mental determination. But what cannot be destroyed may be dispossessed. The only way to dispossess the heart of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new one. And then he points you to Christ. So all of the things that your heart were drawn to. You can't just say, don't think about those. Don't do those. Something else has to enter in and then just flows out. My question to you is, is, are you a legalist? It's hard to see. Are you really a mysticist? You, you know, Jesus is good, but you've got to have special vision. And really, there is an inner ring. And I'm in it. Those are more popular than the third, asceticism. Don't, don't, don't go back to slavery. Please don't drag other people back into slavery. Trust, set your minds on Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Lord, at some point in this text, Paul, the apostle, Paul, the preacher, hit some nerve, no doubt. There's there's a certain attractive quality I, I feel to some of these things. 
But we are, are so thankful for the Apostle Paul to be the, the trumpeter, to, to stand at this tower and, and for the last 2,000 years to, to blow his trumpet over churches and say, don't go back there. The enemy is on its way. Don't go back. Don't listen. They, they don't have anything of value. You hold on to Jesus Christ alone. That's my prayer for these people today. In Jesus' name, amen.